It's winter, 1980. We're in the small town of Lengbe. 19-year-old Jean Hilliard is driving home after meeting with a friend. She takes a shortcut and turns into an icy, slippery road. In the dark, she loses control of the rear-wheel drive car. The vehicle crashes into a ditch. Emergency lights, snowfall, night, and a hard frost. Jean gets out of the vehicle. She's wearing only a light winter coat, mittens, and cowboy boots. The air temperature is much lower than in a freezer. Jean is sure that her friend lives nearby, so she goes that way. She climbs a high hill and realizes she's taken the wrong route. It seems she's gotten lost. The girl wanders a couple more miles and notices her other friend's house in the distance. Freezing, she walks there. Then everything turns black. Jean loses consciousness. The next morning, rancher Wally Nelson wakes up in a great mood. It's the holiday season. There's a winter fairy tale outside the window. He leaves his house and notices the body of Jean Hilliard lying just a few feet from his porch. Wally approaches the girl, shakes her, and is horrified. Her body is stiff and cold like frozen wood. Her eyes are open and don't move. Her hair is frozen. She just doesn't look alive. But Wally sees that she's still breathing. Jean has managed to survive. Wally wants to put her in his car to bring her to the doctor. But the girl's body doesn't bend and can't fit into the auto. It feels like a statue. He takes a bigger car and rushes to the hospital as fast as possible. The doctors take Jean, but they don't think she has any chance to make it. Her hand is so hard and frozen that no needle can penetrate it. A low temperature, glassy eyes, and muscles as hard as stone are all the results of emergency mode. Her body has directed all the blood to the vital organs to ensure their functioning. That's why other parts of her body look so lifeless, and her skin and muscles don't react to anything. The doctors decide to put heating pads on the girl to warm her up. Her family hopes for her recovery, but right now, all they can do is just wait. Frostbite is so dangerous because all that frozen liquid begins to expand. Fill a small bottle with water and put it in the freezer for a few hours. Then take it out and you'll see that the bottle seems to have expanded or even cracked because of the increased volume of the liquid. The same thing happens inside our bodies. We consist of almost 70% water. When it freezes, its particles turn into ice crystals and tear cell membranes. Ice fragments can stretch and destroy tissue. This is called frostbite. Also, our body can slow down all internal processes in extreme cold conditions to save strength and energy. The heart makes fewer beats, and the lungs stop consuming lots of oxygen. Metabolism slows down. It happened with Jean, and perhaps it is what saved her life that day. She was lying in the snow in severe frost for about six hours. But why didn't the ice particles start destroying her cell membranes? How did her body withstand such damage and manage to survive? Back at the hospital, doctors are happy to watch Jean get better. Warm blood spreads through the frozen vessels and brings her body back to life. Surprisingly, ice crystals haven't damaged her muscles and skin. 
A few hours later, the girl regains consciousness. By noon, she starts talking. Jean doesn't know what happened. She remembers walking to her friend's house and then waking up in the hospital. What worries her most right now is that her father's car is somewhere in a ditch. As it turns out, the girl fell down and crawled on all fours to Wally Nelson's house. She doesn't remember it, but apparently, her brain activated the survival instinct that night. Unfortunately, she didn't manage to crawl the last few feet. Jean passed out at the door and stayed there for six hours. Doctors examine the girl and understand that she's completely healthy. Soon, she's discharged from the hospital. This case isn't unique. One professor of emergency medicine, David Plummer, said he'd seen about 12 similar cases over the past 10 years when patients had survived severe frostbite. Jean returns home and finds out that she has become famous. People write about her in newspapers, want to interview her, and film documentary shows. Her case has attracted the attention of many doctors around the world. But no one has been able to find out exactly how she managed to survive. In the case of humans, such recoveries seem like an absolute miracle. But many creatures of the natural world can adapt their bodies to extreme conditions. One of them is the tree frog. These animals live mainly in temperate and tropical parts of Eurasia. Sometimes they have to contend with cold weather. Their body injects glucose into the bloodstream when they feel they're freezing. And the content of their cells turns into syrup. Sugar lowers the freezing point of water. So, tree frogs have adapted to such conditions. The water outside their cells can freeze. Their bodies can get as hard as ice cubes. But they will be alive, feeling great. Then, when it gets warmer, they fully recover. The blood fills their body and puts all their muscles in motion. But one of the most amazing animals that can withstand freezing temperatures is the ghoulish ice fish. It's transparent and somewhat like a jellyfish. It swims in the dark, cold Antarctic waters. The ghoulish ice fish feels comfortable there because of the antifreeze in its body. More precisely, it's a unique substance that is like antifreeze in its functions. This liquid doesn't allow the animal's cells, organs, and the whole body to freeze. There are no red blood cells in the fish's blood that transport oxygen throughout its body. This is the only vertebrate with such a superpower. There are organisms on our planet that use the cold to prolong their life. Scientists have found some of them in the ice of Siberia. Those are microscopic, multi-celled creatures, like small worms, that can live in a freezer for about 10 years. But the worms from Siberia were about 24,000 years old. The scientists transported them to the laboratory and thawed them. The worms came to life and began to multiply immediately after all those centuries of sleep. Their bodies can go into cryptobiosis. This is when an entire frozen organism has minimal vital functions. The analysis showed that the worms could stay in this mode for tens of thousands of years. And there are many such animals on our planet. Also, these creatures are some of the world's most resistant to radiation. They are practically invulnerable. Now back to our story. 
It's possible that Gene Hilliard's body went into short cryptobiosis. Perhaps there was some non-freezing liquid in the girl's blood, but no one knows for sure. These days, she has an ordinary job and almost doesn't remember that day. Further research on this topic can help scientists create special medicines that can help in freezing temperatures. Just imagine that you could safely go outside in the winter wearing a t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Steam would be coming off your body, and the ice under your feet would be melting. You'd feel hot inside. A dream, perhaps. But realistically, winter coat manufacturers would, of course, never allow it. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. A human being can survive up to a couple of months without food, a few days without water, and 69 days trapped underground. At least, that's what 33 miners in Chile managed to do. The 5th of August, 2010, started like a regular workday deep underground. The miners were going about their business, digging for copper, gold, and other minerals. Some of them were working almost 2,500 feet below the surface. Another group was resting in the refuge, a room carved out of the rock for miners to relax in and breathe some fresh air pumped in from the surface. They were waiting for a pickup truck to give them a ride up for lunch. Around 2 p.m., they felt some massive vibrations. A massive bang followed. Everything around started shaking. Dust filled the air, and the passageway collapsed, trapping the men inside. When the noise faded, the miners decided to make a run-up to the surface from the refuge. Their shift manager and others joined forces, determined to rescue every single man. Deep below, two miners were loading rocks into a truck when they felt a burst of pressure. They thought it was nothing extraordinary until the dust became so thick that they couldn't see a thing. Driving blindly, they almost collided with their shift supervisor, who signaled them to stop. With the truck now packed with terrified men, they set on a treacherous journey toward the surface. The truck struggled under the weight of its passengers, but it pressed on. They met up with more workers, cramming onto the truck like sardines. Obstacle by obstacle, they moved to the surface until they bumped into a huge rock weighing around 700,000 tons and as tall as a 45-story building. They sent the smallest of the miners to see if there was any hope of squeezing through next to the rock. He only managed to crawl 10 feet forward with a lamp in his hand and told everyone else there was no chance to get any further. Some of the older miners got trapped at work before, but it would usually be some rocks that a bulldozer could clear in a couple of hours. This time, it was different. The miners didn't plan to give up, so they split, and one group searched for shafts that let air, water, and electricity flow into the mine. Those are supposed to have ladders to serve as an escape room. They managed to find one chimney with a ladder. One of the miners climbed up, breathing in dust and holding onto slippery walls. The chimney led him to the same rocky wall they'd seen before. It meant only one thing. There really was no way out. They had to deliver the sad news to the rest of the miners who went back to the refuge. It had enough snacks to feed 33 people for several days. Someone grabbed the snacks, still not realizing they could be stuck down there for days or weeks. 
Cans of peaches, peas, and tuna, six gallons of condensed milk, and 93 packages of cookies were all they had. The one thing they wouldn't have to worry about was water. There was more than enough of it in nearby tanks, which were keeping the engines cool. All the connections to the outside world, the electricity, the intercom system, the flow of water, and compressed air have been cut. Men working above the ground on that fateful day also heard the blasts and saw the dust cloud in front of the main entrance. While the miners were settling in for the first night in the refuge, the local emergency squad was trying to do everything in their power to save everyone. One team went down in a pickup truck until they bumped into the gray rock mass at around 1,500 feet. Another team tried descending on ropes and pulleys into the chimneys, but they found obstructions at each level. The supervisor of the team took off his distinctive white helmet to show all the workers were equal now. As the miners remembered later, it was one inspiring gesture for them. On the 7th of August, there was another collapse that blocked the ventilation shafts. On the next day, the rescuers started drilling holes and sent down listening probes to see if there were any signs of life down there, with no results. The maps of the mine were outdated, which made the search more complicated. Deep below the surface, the miners tried to keep their spirits up, talking, joking, and telling stories. Their phones didn't have a signal, but they could still use them as cameras to record videos about their survival underground. Their metabolisms were slowing down, and even the most active among them were sleeping longer than usual and having scary nightmares. There was a haze drifting over their thoughts. They spent 17 days without any contact with the outside world, eating only once every other day. Some of the miners started having health problems. On the 22nd of August, one of around 30 probes sent into the mine detected tapping. It came back with a note saying, all 33 of us are all right in the shelter. Soon, rescuers managed to deliver food, water, letters, first aid, and other necessary supplies through the narrow borehole. They also sent down high-tech video cameras that beamed back live footage of the men in their steamy, sauna-like surroundings. The miners invented a system of jobs and routines to survive in those conditions and remain sane. Above ground, an international team of engineering and mining geniuses put their heads together to crack the code of how to bring those brave souls back up to the surface. They came up with a plan to drill an escape tunnel and lower a capsule inside the mine, large enough to fit one person at a time. Then a crane would pull the capsule back to the surface. They brought three separate drilling rigs to the site and began work on the 30th of August, 25 days after the accident. The trapped workers were helping their rescue from below. They formed three teams and worked eight-hour shifts, demolishing debris caused by the drilling to reinforce the mine's walls. The original plan was to set them free by December, but Plan B drill finished working on a tunnel by the 9th of October. It took two more days to line up the tunnel with metal tubing. Finally, a rescue worker went down into the mine inside the capsule. The families and friends of the miners were waiting above the ground in a makeshift Camp Hope. The first worker got out of the mine after a 15-minute journey through 2,050 feet of rock inside the capsule. He was greeted as a hero. One by one, they all escaped from the refuge. Millions of people around the globe followed the rescue on live TV. It took less than a day instead of the planned 48 hours. All 33 of the miners, aged 19 to 63, had been rescued and were mostly in good health. 
They all had to wear dark glasses to help their eyes to the sun after being in a space with so little light for so long. One of the last miners to have climbed back up on the surface was Franklin Lobos, a former professional soccer player. While he was down there, teams around the world signed jerseys for him. Franklin got that welcome gift and a soccer ball. He said it had been the toughest match of his entire life. The incredible 33 were showered with love and praise. They were guaranteed six months of top-notch health care. They traveled to international destinations to talk as motivational speakers, appear in public, and explore famous landmarks. There was even a parade at Florida's Walt Disney World in the miners' honor. A movie named 33, based on their story, came out in 2015, featuring Antonio Banderas. He played the role of the miner who filmed daily video logs to assure the public that they were all right. This story, which many find to be a real miracle, went down in history and in the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest time survived trapped underground. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Hey, want to hear something shocking? In an ordinary house outlet that we use to charge the phone, the voltage is 110 volts. A high-voltage power line that provides electricity to dozens of buildings has a voltage of 100,000 volts. The energy of one lightning strike is more than 10 million volts. Woo! And the temperature of lightning is almost twice the temperature on the sun's surface. And this incredible charge is flying at a speed of just two and a half times slower than the speed of light. Now imagine what happens to a person when lightning strikes them. Well, let me tell you. The discharge passes through the body in one hundredth of a second. Lightning can stop our hearts and disrupt the work of our entire nervous system. You may not even realize what has happened at first. Perhaps you will lose consciousness and your body will be in a state of shock. Every day, there are several million lightning strikes in the world. Fortunately, you have little chance of getting hit by one. The odds that lightning will strike you is about 15,300 to 1. About 20,000 people are struck by lightning every year. The chances that lightning will strike you twice are even smaller. And what are the odds that you'll be struck by lightning seven times throughout your life? It seems impossible, but one person experienced it for himself. His name was Roy Sullivan. He was born in 1912 in Greene County, Virginia, in a big family with seven children. Roy was an ordinary guy and was no different from his brothers and sisters. But for some reason, the natural element chose him. In 1936, he began working as a ranger at Shenandoah National Park. There, lightning struck him seven times over 35 years. So the first accident happened in April 1942. On that day, a strong thunderstorm began. Roy took refuge in a new fire tower where builders hadn't installed a lightning rod. Lightning struck the building several times. A massive fire started inside and Roy ran out. As soon as he was a few feet away from the shelter, lightning hit his toe and burned a hole in his shoe. The next time occurred 27 years later, in July 1969. Roy was working in the National Park. He was driving a truck through hilly terrain when a storm started. Lightning struck him through the open car window. The charge burned his eyebrows and eyelashes, 
and slightly touched his hair. Roy lost consciousness, and the car continued to move. It stopped at the very edge of a cliff. Fifteen minutes later, Roy came to his senses. A year later, in July 1970, the third time occurred. The weather was fine, but in a matter of minutes, clouds became thicker and a thunderstorm began. Lightning struck a transformer near Roy. The man ran away as fast as possible, but nature got him again. Lightning hit his shoulder. Two years later, in 1972, lightning struck Roy for the fourth time while he was working at the National Park Station. The charge set his hair on fire, and the man ran to the bathroom and used a wet towel to put out the flames on his burning head. From that moment, Roy began to suspect that some invisible evil force had been pursuing him. He started to carry a bottle of water with him to put out the fire in case of another hit. The fifth strike happened in the National Park again. It occurred in 1973. Roy tripped over a rock and fell. At that moment, he noticed thunderclouds in the sky. Frightened, he ran to his truck, got inside, and stepped on the gas. Roy drove as far from that spot as possible. Then he stopped and got out of the car to see where the storm was. And at that moment, lightning struck again. It went through his left arm and left leg and set his shoe on fire. Roy quickly climbed back into the truck and extinguished the fire using his water bottle. In 1976, the sixth case occurred. Roy was walking along a trail in the park, just one mile away from the place where lightning struck him the last time. And then storm clouds appeared again. Lightning flashed and stung Roy in the palm. After the sixth strike, he began to suspect something was wrong with the park. After 40 years of working, Roy finally decided to quit. Finally. He hoped the lightning would stop chasing him. But he was wrong. By that time, the man had already become a celebrity. But such fame didn't let him enjoy life. People were afraid to be near him because they believed the lightning could hit them at any moment. Journalists gave Roy Sullivan the nicknames Spark Ranger and Human Lightning Conductor. Of course, the man disliked all of this and felt very lonely. But besides this problem, he also suffered from constant fears and the feeling of persecution. All the time, he was waiting for the lightning to strike again at any moment. Fortunately, he was married. His wife supported him and helped him in everything. After quitting his job, Roy decided to move with his wife to the small town of Dooms, Virginia. Wow, Dooms. Talk about foreshadowing. It was only a year without accidents. Then, on June 25, 1977, lightning struck Roy again. He went fishing at the local pond early in the morning. The catch was good, but the sky was overcast. Roy immediately felt there would be a strike. There was a smell of sulfur in the air, and the hairs on his arms stood on end. His whole body tensed. Lightning struck Roy in the head, passing through his chest and stomach. The man ran to his car to take cover. At that moment, a hungry bear came out of the forest. He approached Roy's bucket of fish to pick up all the trout the man had caught. Roy ran out of the vehicle with his hair on his head smoldering to chase the animal away. After the seventh lightning strike, he lost hearing in his left ear and realized he couldn't hide from the lightning anywhere. 
His wife was afraid to be with him outside during a thunderstorm. One day, she was hanging laundry in the backyard. Roy came out of the house to help her. A few minutes later, lightning struck his wife. Fortunately, she wasn't badly injured. After that, besides fear and social loneliness, he felt guilt. Of course, many doctors and scientists tried to help Roy. But no one managed to find the reason for this strange phenomenon. According to science, each time it was just a coincidence. Mathematics and physics were powerless here. With such answers from scientists, Roy believed that invisible forces were pursuing him or that fate was punishing him for something. Perhaps the answer lies in the man's past. The National Park Service and doctors documented all seven times when he was struck by lightning. But there was another eighth time, which couldn't be confirmed. According to Roy, lightning struck him in his youth when he was helping his father mow wheat. The discharge hit the scythe blade. No one but the boy saw it. Perhaps at that moment, the lightning changed something in his body and made him more attractive for the next hits. Lightning always chooses the path of least resistance. And this is how lightning occurs. Rain, ice, and snow particles collide with one another inside a storm. This process increases the imbalance between clouds and the ground, negatively charging the lower layers of clouds. Things down there, like trees and the Earth, get positively charged and create another imbalance. Nature tries to remedy this imbalance between the two opposite charges by passing an electric current through them. Perhaps nature felt some charge imbalance in Roy's body and tried to remedy it. But why did he get struck at an interval of 1 to 2 years? Besides, more than 20 years passed between the first and second hit. Scientists still can't explain what happened to him. Maybe Roy was just an attractive guy. As you can probably predict, Roy Sullivan was listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the person struck by lightning most often in the world. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.